Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. A quick upfront note, if you enjoy this podcast, help others find us by posting your review on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews we get, the more the higher we rise, and the more that people have an opportunity to just find us accidentally. So if you could do that, it'd be great. Um, today, we are going to be talking about financial aid and mental health. You may not realize that these two are connected, but they are. We're going to be talking a little more about that. We're also going to be talking about whether or not colleges care about community service. You might be surprised. You might find me cynical, um, but you're going to have to wait and learn more uh, later in the show. Before we get to all of that, um, we're going to be talking about the PSAT, and that is typically available to students in their junior year, usually in October. Um, we get a lot of questions about the PSAT, so we're going to talk about it today. And I am thrilled because we have one of my favorite people in the standardized testing world, Megan Stubendeck, here. She's CEO of Arbor Bridge, and she's going to join us to talk about the PSAT. Hi, Megan. Thanks, Beth. Really happy to be here. Awesome. All right. Well, why don't we start with some basics? What exactly is the PSAT? And probably most importantly, does it count for college admissions? All right. I'm going to get to the punchline there. It does not count in college admissions. So many of you who are worried about it can take a sigh of relief. That is, it is not something that you send with your application to college that colleges are going to look at and really be judging you on. Um, so the reason that we take the PSAT is that it's practice. That's what the P stands for, actually. It is a practice SAT. That's just a shorter version of the SAT. It has the same concepts. There's a few high-level things that don't show up on the PSAT that you'll later see on the SAT, but it's a really great way to just get a feel for the test of the SAT you'll take eventually, or maybe you won't take. And that's actually why people take it, is to just get a diagnostic score to start out and say, is testing the right path for me? Right, right. And um, quick question around the scoring. I know it's a little different. So when people get their score reports back, Anything you could point to that are key to pay attention to or notice about the differences between how a PSAT will be scored and how an SAT is scored? Exactly. This is a number one question we get because you're going to get that score back. And families always, because we think about this as practice SAT, is the number one question is, is this a good representation of how I'm actually going to do on the SAT? Right. And the, the College Board has done actually a really good job of setting up the scoring for both of those exams. And the way they've done this is that when you take the PSAT, the score you get that day in junior year of October uh, is the score you would get on the real SAT if you took it that same day hmm. when you were junior in high school. So many students are actually going to see their scores go up just naturally by the time they take the SAT in spring of junior year or summer between junior and senior year, uh, just because they know more, they've gone farther in school, they practice a little bit more. So there should be a natural inflation that happens. But really what it does is show you on that specific day how you do both on the PSAT and on the SAT. Interesting. So I've actually never heard it expressed that way. So <laughs> super interesting to me when I talk to my students this year um, about the PSAT. So here's always a big question. I get it a lot. I do a lot of talking around not doing this. So it doesn't count. Do, should you bother prepping? Do you practice prep, prep for a practice exam? 
Beth, this is where we are both on the same wavelength here. Yes. The answer for the vast majority of students in the world, in this country, at your local high school is no. Right. You do not need to prepare for this exam. The better use of your time in your beginning of your junior year is actually to focus on academics, on school, because your GPA in junior year is a huge part of your transcript. And getting that year started on a great foot is the perfect way to use your time. Um, Plus, you get the double benefit of all the things you study in school are showing up on the PSAT anyway. So why not just sort of you know, feed two birds with one scone is the way we talk about it at Arbor Bridge all the time. Right. Um, but there are some rare cases when somebody might want to prepare, and that would be for the national merit competition. Right. So actually, why don't we talk a little bit about that? How does the PSAT and national merit relate? And, you know, I, obviously I know about this, but we're <laughs> going to talk to you about it. What is the national merit? Let our, let's let our listeners know. Yeah, so this is a term many people know, and it's sort of this nebulous golden crown that exists out there. But really what it is, is um, it is a national competition in the United States. So it does not apply to any students who might take the PSAT abroad. Um, But it's really focused on U.S. students, and they qualify for a competition that's nationwide for a small scholarship. Scholarship is a one-time payment of about between $2,000 and $3,000. So Mm -hmm. it's not a full-ride scholarship. It is not going to, for many students, sort of be the thing that's going to really turn the tables financially for them. Um, But it is... Uh, you start on the national merit pathway by taking the PSAT. It's the entry point. So students who score in the top 4% of the students in their state usually move on from the PSAT, and then they get into the national merit competition, which is a more traditional competition of you send letters of recommendation, you send your GPA, transcripts, and all of that normal stuff you send even for college admissions. But um, you know, the main thing I do sort of stress to families is, you know, it is a small amount of money. Um, so it's not worth breaking yourself at the PSAT mark in order to, to get this scholarship. There are better ways to spend your time, your money, and your effort that are going to have a much stronger impact on you, both in admissions and once you get to college and have to pay for college. Right. And I think another thing that I always makes me feel like don't waste your time prepping is because it's also a state-by-state basis. So if you're in a state like I am in Massachusetts, where there are the the number to qualify is is first of all they it changes every year right based on how the students in that state do that year but it tends to be pretty a pretty high number just to qualify and it's a moving target it's not like you could be shooting for something specific and if you get it you're guaranteed to advance in the national merit um, and so for there are a lot of reasons why I really see it as not a good. Um, a good use of time and money, as you said. Um, you you were sharing that sometimes there are parents who are just no, but we really want, and I and I, you know, the we, the royal we, we really want to prepare for this test. Um, so, what do you say to them if if they are bound and determined that they're going to do some type of prep? What's your advice on that front? I think there's really two big things that I would stress, and the first is be reasonable. This is not the time to invest tons of time actually into test prep because it doesn't have a huge uh, impact on the national merit. Even as you said, it's a moving target. You may do it and then it actually not pan out at all. And that happens to even the best students it happens to since you think are really going to get it. And they just, they have a bad day and it happens because you only get one shot at the PSAT. That's the other thing to kind of keep in mind. And then, you know, if you're going to do it, maybe start four to six weeks in advance, but this is not the time to put in three hours a day or 20 practice tests. It is 
a bit of review, um, uh, a bit of review of the concepts maybe, and maybe one practice test, and then you go in. So this is not the time to kill yourself on this. Right. The second thing to keep in mind is there are a lot of free resources out there that are exactly the right thing to use for PSAT prep. If you're going to spend money on test prep, your better investment is always going to be on the SAT or ACT, the actual exam. Yes. Letters and counts. Yes. <laughs> you know, and you're going to actually see a real, uh, real uh, return on that investment in a way you're not going to see on the PSAT. So a couple of free resources I'd recommend. The number one for PSAT is Khan Academy. They mm-hmm. have some great resources on there, practice tests, lessons you can go through, practice questions to do. That's a really great place to go if you do decide. I actually do want to, maybe it's just a little bit, maybe you want to spend 30 minutes just to acquaint yourself with what the test right. is going to look like. Yes. Or maybe you want to do a little bit more. Maybe it's a, like I said, a practice test or two. That's where you go. Got it. Okay. So, I mean, great advice. I love that it's free. It's always good to be directing people to free resources. So then the, the last year in October, there was something going on and a lot of people didn't offer the PSAT. Um, what's your sense? Is there going to be a PSAT this year? Yeah, COVID really derailed a lot of stuff. PSAT is only Mm -hmm. one of the thousands of things we could all probably list about last year. Um, What I would say here is that last year when many schools were um, remote, they couldn't give the PSAT because the PSAT is a paper-based test given on a school day in your home high school. Those three things have to happen. Mm-hmm. So right now, there's no way to take it remotely if your school is remote or you're in hybrid instruction. So last year, what they did is the college board, which produces and creates and um, maintains the, the PSAT, what they did is they added a test date in January, which I've never done before. And that was in hopes that most schools would be back in school in session in January. And that really did happen for most students. Um, so the thing to remember is that the college board wants you to take this exam. They yes. love for kids to take it. Of course. So try to give you as many opportunities as possible. But it is possible that your school isn't going to be uh, in person at the time and won't be able to give the test. Now, if that happens, um, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. The first is uh, just wait for a, a rescheduling date. There's a possibility they'll just reschedule it for another time. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, that January test might come back this year. We still haven't heard that for sure, but it possibly could. The other thing to remember is that you could go back to why this test exists. Right. Diagnostic and practice. And you can get that in many other places for free, whether it's Khan Academy or through someone like Arbor Bridge or in a local community. That is possible. So you can always fill that gap um, if, if that's the reason you're taking the PSAT. And then if you're really focused on merit um, and the National Merit Scholarship uh, sort of competition, what about that? Is there an alternate way to enter that if you can't take the PSAT? Yes. And this is something that was used more last year than I've ever seen it used or we've gotten most questions about because of COVID cancellations. There is a way in and it's called alternate entry. That is its official name, alternate (laughs) entry to national merit. So you can Google that term and it will send you right to the forms to fill out. But really, it's a really easy process that starts off with you submit a form as soon as you know you will not have access to the PSAT. Um, and you have to take an official SAT by the end of your junior year and submit that score to national merit. That's the way you do it. It's a pretty easy process, but just keep in mind it only students can only use alternate entry if uh, one of three things happens. They were sick on the day the sc- uh, your, their school offered the PSAT. They had a personal emergency and couldn't take it on the day their school offered it or their school was closed, usually right. due to COVID. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And any number of those 
reasons could have been met um, because of COVID right now, right? Absolutely. And um, you know, and I think to be clear, we are we've done a few segments on test optional, what that means, and we know that the majority of schools this year are going to be test optional. I think about two thirds. Um, and we have written blogs and talked about this in the past, so we don't really need to get into the whole test optional question. But I think Megan and I are on the same page here in that if you are worried about taking the test because of COVID, if it's dangerous for you to be in the room, if it's dangerous for people in your home to have you go in and sit in a room with a lot of other people, please don't take it. <laughs> it does not matter for college admissions. And ultimately, um, you will not even have to do the SAT or the ACT because so many schools are test optional if your health is a real concern, right? So um, I think that is an underlying message. Last question that I have for you, Megan, and that is, um, I have over time told families that, hey, if your school offers the opportunity for you to take the SAT, I'm sorry, the PSAT to sophomores or even freshmen, you might want to take advantage of it. What, do, what are your thoughts on younger students taking the PSAT? Yeah, I, just sort of a little bit of background. The PSAT uh, is offered, the one we all talk about because it's national merit right. tied and all of that is really junior year. That's the one when people say PSAT, they're talking about it's a junior year, October 1. But there is a PSAT 10 for 10th mm -hmm. graders and a PSAT 8 and 9 that's built for 8th and 9th graders. And what's kind of different about those exams is they are just, they get shorter and shorter as you go sort of backwards in school and are a little bit, uh, a little bit less advanced concepts. Got but it. I usually said to, to families who have access to it is take it. It's nice again to have the practice, to have the exposure, the more scores you have for yourself. Again, remember if the PSAT isn't on college admissions, eighth, ninth and 10th grade, they're definitely not going right. to be at that score. It doesn't mean anything. It does not, it's not tied to national merit either. Um, those ones are really just for your benefit as a student and as a parent to see, oh, how's my student doing? And you might have a real good sense early on that, you know what, testing is not going to be for my student or testing is going to be for my students. So you can, uh, you know, cross those things off or add them to your list earlier in the process. Just know what is coming down the line. It's really just for your own education and comfort at that point. Yeah, I uh, totally agree. I see no harm in doing it. The, the times that I have occasionally advised is if a parent says my child has real test anxiety and they're worried that they're not going to do well. And then we're looking at the concepts and thinking they may not because they haven't had them. And so might it actually ratchet up their test anxiety if they take it younger? But on the whole, I'm with you. I think take it. There is no harm. It doesn't count. You go in, you don't worry about it. Um, so I would have to 100% agree with that advice, Megan, which is why well, I love having you on the show. We're always, we're in a mind meld. It's good stuff. Um, it's mutual. It's definitely mutual. <laughs> absolutely. Megan, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Beth. And thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are going to take a really short break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about mental health and financial aid. So definitely do not go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. 
That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Getting In, a college coach conversation. Uh, We are talking in this segment about financial aid and mental health. And you wouldn't necessarily see those two things as being as going together, but they do. And we're going to talk a little about that. And joining me for that conversation is my colleague and former University of Portland financial aid officer, Alex Gonzalez. Hi, Alex. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thanks. And thank you for being here today. Um, so why don't we start with that first kind of that first question, which is how does mental health and financial aid intersect? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And and how does it? You're kind of like, okay, uh, where do we start? Well, I typically try to think about it as like education is an investment. And so where do we get it? Money, right? Financial yeah. aid. So how do we how do we be successful? You know, we've made the choices of being at college, um, invested in yourself, and then what are some implications if uh, you um, if students are, are faced with a mental health crisis or just in general, just kind of feeling overwhelmed or depressed or the anxiety. And so financial aid can be a part of that. And so we do have to keep that in mind. It's better to find yourself knowing about what you need to do and communicate with the financial aid office before you're in that kind of crisis mode or deep, uh, kind of uh, working through the, those um, issues. Right. Because if, yeah, I mean, if your mental health is not all there, you may find yourself not wanting to go to class or you may not be able to study for a test. Right. So it's going to start to impact your performance in the classroom. And then if you have financial aid or you have scholarship, if you're not doing well in school, it could mean that those things could go away. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So that good mental health is important for, for class performance. And, and yes, some of those scholarships could be connected to uh, your academic progress. So over time, it could be uh, academic, you might have to meet a certain GPA semester by semester. Um, yeah, and so what are some of those resources that are on campus that you could take advantage of? Right. Walk yeah, us so, through them, what are yeah, they? Yeah. <laughs> So I I just remind students and parents, um, because we're all in it together, especially when it comes to mental health, is that there might be some early uh, alert systems that are on campus. Um, Typically, they're connected either to the IRRA, so the resident assistant, um, because they get to know you um, um, on your day-to-day life. You know, are you waking up early? Are you going to class? And then your professors also might have 
um, some warning systems if you're not meeting academic requirements or not turning in things, that there might be some office on campus uh, mm -hmm. that you can connect to um, as well. well Right. And I, and I think the you know, again, you have to be thoughtful about the school that you wind up at, correct? Because if you're in a big lecture hall, your professor may not notice that you of, you know, you didn't show up to class with because you're there with 200 other students. But if you're in a small recitation and there are eight other students and you don't show for that, the TA might notice. Um, yeah. Or, you know, if you're in a school, I, I do hear students sometimes really drawn to a smaller school because they know their professors will know who they are. And that comes, sometimes that's good and bad. It's good because they know you and they will notice if you're not there and they may ask you, hey, what's going on? And and maybe kind of suggest that you go get some help. It could be bad if you just really didn't want to go to class that day for no <laughs> reason other than it was beautiful outside and you didn't want to, and then you don't have any kind of an excuse. But I think those, you know, if you're someone who in the past has felt challenged by mental health issues, something to consider when you are looking at schools and whether or not you're the kind of kid or student who will seek out help or if you really do need that safety net of other people being more likely to notice. And if you go to a school where there are 40,000 undergrads, that might be, might be, not necessarily, but it might be less likely to happen. Yeah. And those colleges are aware of it. You know, when you were working at a university and I was working at a university, you know, there are faculty teams and staff teams and support networks that are there even at those larger universities. So yes. it is a good idea to kind of get an idea of those kind of second level questions as you're choosing colleges, once you're starting to kind of have that orientation and ask those questions about health centers, academic support, uh, interest or cultural uh, clubs that are on mm -hmm. campus that make you feel connected and have that commonality. So you feel that you're a part of or invested in the community as well. Um, because um, those can all help kind of as you're going through kind of uh, mental health issues is that those can be support networks and kind of help guide you through um, those processes or connect you to the right services as well. Right, uh, right. Right. Know that, you know, yeah. Oh, go for it. No, I was just going to say or help you feel connected, which might help you, um, you know, might help lessen the chance that you do end up finding that you have challenges, right? If one of the big challenges for a lot of students is acclimating to college life and making friends and feeling like you belong, if you start with or at a school where you're already part of a group that shares a similar interest to you, shares a similar cultural background, um, you might have a group that you already fit with right from the start, and that can help with those feelings of loneliness or feelings like you're not meeting anyone, but everybody else is, or, you know, you're not connecting with anyone. It won't necessarily prevent that from happening, but it could help to make it less likely that something like that might happen. Yeah. And providing those, 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 those spaces of support is right. really what those universities are finding. Right. But, but sometimes those spaces of support need, you need a break. Yep. And, and, you know, you are, again, investing in your, uh, your education. And so sometimes you do need a pause. You might need to leave school. And so what are some of those things that you need to um, communicate with the financial aid office? 
Right. As in, don't just get in your car and drive home and then, you know, just leave for two months without telling anybody, right? So this is great. What are some of the important things that you need to do if you do need to take a leave? Yeah. um, Be aware of like the ad drop dates. Um, So typically in the first couple of weeks, you might have a period of time where you can add and drop classes at, at kind of free of charge in the sense that you haven't sat long enough in a classroom and so you're not charged for that that time in the classroom. Mm-hmm. But there is some space where, you know, halfway through the semester or as you're getting closer to the end of class, there might be opportunities for you to take advantage of incompletes, withdraw um, at a discount um, mm-hmm. that isn't impacting maybe your financial aid that you're that you're looking at as right. well. Um, also opportunities to communicate and find out where your scholarships are. They might be, they might be semester by semester, or you get that big award package and it says for eight semesters, you are receiving this total amount. Right. Um, and so what does that look like? Do, if you communicate early enough, do you get that extra semester that you, you, you can utilize? Or can you make that up in the summer as well and take one course? So it reminds me of a time when I was working with a family and they were trying to go through this and trying to make the best decision for them, but also know that you can step back, kind of regroup, and then maybe return at part-time, at three-quarters time, or kind of make a plan that makes uh, sense for you and your family as well. Right, right. And and I think probably the overarching idea here is talk to someone in the financial aid office. And if you are not able to have a trusted parent or guardian or just a trusted adult, have that conversation. Because I do think sometimes when you run into mental health challenges, it can be hard to focus on anything other than that and really even to know or to motivate to do anything about anything. So, you know, and, and then the burden of not having talked to someone, of not knowing really what is going to happen can make it even worse. So if you're not able to have this conversation with a financial aid officer, try and have somebody else step in who can at least act on your behalf um, to, to, because I think that also the other overarching thing here is that colleges, once you're enrolled and you're a student in the university, their hope is you're going to stay, that you're going to graduate. That's what they want for you as a student. Um, and so they're, they're not trying to look for the first opportunity to say, oh, you, you know, you had a, a bump in the road, you're out, right? They yeah. want to try and work with you to make it possible for you to stay the course and earn your diploma. Exactly, exactly. I, I remember with, when students were kind of going through mental health issues is that, uh, and not as an added burden, but as that support within the community, they had to meet with several folks, mm-hmm. um, academic support, financial aid, and residence life to have those conversations, not, not just to provide a, oh, here, you're, you have to sign off, mm-hmm. but more along the lines of what can we do to make it work? Right, right. That's really what they want at, at the end um, is to make it work. And and I just, you know, curious for you if you um, have any advice about, you know, 
when to go all th- through this. I think you've mentioned already that, you know, when you're looking at schools, this might be something for you to look into. I think some students come to college knowing that mental health challenges have been part of their life and that there is a possibility those will crop up again. I think for other students, it's a brand new thing. As I sit here talking to you about this, it's reminding me that this is a conversation I want to have with my own son who has not faced challenges, but he'll be away from home. It will be the first time and he may be far from home. And and so even if I think he is the most even keeled kid in the world, likely to have no trouble at all. I want to make sure that I have a conversation with him about what to do if he is feeling depressed, if if he is feeling anxious, if there are some challenges he's experiencing that are new to him. Um, any advice along those lines for, for you from you for students? Yeah, yeah. A- ask those questions before, during, and after. Really, yeah. I mean, there are all of the above. Those are times when. Um, you know, preparing to know kind of what those structures are uh, during when um, you are looking at, you know, you're going through it, asking for help. Right. And and, and then after creating a plan. So if something, there was a bump in the road, like what can we do to improve it? What are those structures of support that you can take advantage of? um, So to maybe potentially mitigate a future reoccurrence of, 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 of your issue or bump. Right, right, absolutely. And I think the other thing that I would encourage is, especially for families where the student has already experienced some challenges, I think really important to be connecting with the student's um, health team, whatever that looks like, whatever the makeup is, and understanding realistically, should this student be a student who goes to a big school? Should this student be a student who goes far from home? Would it be better for them to stay closer to their existing team? Or does the team feel confident that if you get them settled in another school and find the right support for them, so they've got a new team where they are, is that going to be okay? I do find sometimes that parents would like to... Um, their hope is it's all in the past and now my student's going to go off to college. And we know that colleges are seeing unprecedented levels of student mental health challenges. And so it stands to reason that if you've had a challenge before you even get there, there's, there's a decent likelihood that that might crop up again. And so the best thing you can do is be thoughtful about it, talk about it, Um, I hope we're at a place in this country where it's okay to talk about mental health issues. If you had a child who had cancer, you would never send them away without thinking about that element of their health. And I would encourage you to have the same approach to the mental health. If that's not how you're thinking about it, I I would encourage you to to start thinking about it that way. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Really important topic. And when it was proposed, I thought, I don't really know how these go together. And yet, clearly they do. Um, And I appreciate you joining us to talk through how that works. Yeah, anytime. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we are talking about community service. Do colleges even care about it? You're going to have to tune in to get my answer, which might surprise you. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. College admissions can be stressful. 
but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back, everybody. This is the segment I've been teasing for the entire uh, uh, show. And joining me is someone who might look somewhat familiar to you, and it's Ian. Uh, Ian Fisher, who hosts the show when I'm not here. Uh, well, he shares hosting duties when I'm not here with Sally Ganga. Mm-hmm. Ian, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me on your show. As a guest, as opposed to as a host. This is great. It Um, is great. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm excited for us to have another conversation uh, that hopefully everybody will enjoy. Absolutely. And I should add that you are obviously a colleague, but also former uh, admissions officer at Reed College. We don't typically lead with our experience, so people may not remember that about you, but you are a former admissions officer. So That's right. All right. So I have been teasing this all uh, episode, and what I've been saying is, uh, you know, do colleges care about community service? And I said that people, I thought people would be surprised by my answer. But why don't you give me your answer? Do colleges care? About community service? Yes. <sighs> I, I, think, I think the answer is that the community service doesn't fall into a special category in the application process, uh, whereby students need to have it in order to be admissible. To any given school. And so I, you know, I wrote a blog post a while ago that the headline was colleges don't care about community service. Um, and I think that that was sort of precipitated by this idea that so many families were coming to us and saying, you know, so here are his grades, here are his courses, and here's his volunteer work as though that was necessary. Now, right. we know that, you know, grades and courses are necessary in mm-hmm. order to apply for traditional colleges. But community service is not in that same kind of category. And so it was a little bit of uh, an enticing headline uh, that we put on that. Clickbait, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it worked. A lot of people read it and I think got, got the message from that. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's important to have this conversation so that families can understand a little bit better. All right. I think my short answer to that question is always no. Do colleges care about community <laughs> service? No. And the you reason... Like to keep it simple. Yeah. I like to keep it simple. <laughs> The reason I say no is because it's not a bad thing to do community service, but it's exactly what you just shared. It is not an expectation. So if you didn't do community service, it's not like your application will be lacking. If you do do it, it's not like your application has something extra special. It is one thing that students can choose to do outside of the classroom. If you do it, that can be great. If you don't do it, not a problem. Right. So that's why I say no. 
Yeah. And, and so like, to me, it's as silly as, as somebody saying, you know, colleges are really interested in tuba players. And so right. you, you need to play the tuba if you want to get into college. That, that's a, a type of activity. It's a way of being involved within your community. And community service is another type of activity. But I, I encourage families to think about what the personalities and dispositions are of their students and their interests in order to determine whether service is something that has a really big role for them in their extracurricular profile. Right. And I think the other challenge is with this vision that colleges, that community services, this, oh, you have to do it, is that that then leads to many students writing about it because they think colleges really care about it. So what's your take on the community service essay? <laughs> uh, I, I don't ever want to say that a topic for an essay is totally off limits because I think that there is a way to write a great essay for all kinds of different topics. In fact, I had a student last year that wrote a great essay that started with a service trip to Mm -hmm. another country. Now, that's not what it was about, but that was a part of what led towards the main idea that he was creating for his essay. But I think that the issue that I see with students is that when we start brainstorming essays, they put themselves in a box from the start Mm -hmm. and saying, I have to write about this because this is the thing that colleges want to hear about. And and Beth, I was talking to a young woman just a couple of days ago, and I asked her, um, what are you known for? Like, what are you really good at? And she's just like, well, I do a lot of volunteer work. And I felt in that answer that she was trying to answer in a way that she thought I wanted to hear. Right. And so I said, let's take that apart. Like, what do your friends think of you? Like, what kind of role do you play within your friend group? What's your, what's your, your relationship with your friends? She's like, well, I'm kind of the mom of the group. You know, I'm always prepared for different things. I look out for everybody. I was like, this is your essay. We got to find a way to make this right. your essay. Not right. as well as movies. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and yet, I'm sure you've had the experience, as have I, where community service really is integral to a student's identity. They, they, yeah. It's what they do with their time, and they, they can talk about it in interesting and exciting ways. They get a lot out of it. They're accomplishing a lot, but personally, it's very gratifying to them. And right. that's a great example of how that could be a really great essay to, or a topic to write about for that student, but it should never be the default choice. And right. I, you know, I like the way that you're saying it. You know, they put themselves in a box. Don't do that, <laughs> right? Be more open. Uh, don't put yourself in the box. You can't write about this, but also don't put yourself in the box that I should write about this because I think this is what colleges want to hear about. I think the other thing about service essays is that, you know, what, what we often focus on when we talk to students after their first drafts or even in, in the brainstorming process is what's the takeaway here? Like what's, what's the growth that you've experienced? What's the realization you've had about yourself? And I think through service, we can have some really great realizations, um, but they're not usually unusual. They're not uncommon, right? So we might have some kind of reflection that comes from serving others, but a lot of people get that same kind of feeling when they have that kind of activity. And so if you're writing an essay that talks about that revelation that you had, while it can be deeply personal, it's not, it doesn't help to differentiate you within an applicant pool and it's not particularly profound. Um, And so we want to look for places where you're actually painting a better picture of who you are as a, as a different kind of student from other applicants. Right. Okay. 
Let's shift slightly here. We have students who do want to do community service or perhaps they need to because it's part of their high school's requirements or perhaps as a parent, you feel that it's really important your student do community service. I do want to be clear that neither Ian nor I are saying... Community oh, I service love community bad, service. Right? I think it's great. I think it's right. great. Yeah. And that you shouldn't do it. We're not saying right. that. But I would love to get your thoughts, Ian, on um, what are some of the ways in which you've seen students or that you encourage community service involvement that you think can be particularly valuable? Yeah. Um, I was just talking to a student yesterday, actually, and I think you and I were going back and forth about this this radio show. And, and I happened to meet with one of my students and this t- subject of community service came up in exactly right. this form. And what we were talking about was he's a student that has long had an interest in reading. He likes spending time at the library. He enjoys exploring books. And so we started talking about not necessarily um, leading with, well, what kind of service can you do? But how mm-hmm. can you get involved in your community that allows you to both explore this passion that you have for the library or for books right. and also make connections and, and uh, you know, uh, make a difference within your community? Um, and so, so we started more with what the interest is and then look for ways to express that interest. Because I think what's really interesting from an admission standpoint is, I'm not counting up hours when I'm looking right. at an activities list yes. for a student, you know? I'm like, how are you actually spending your time here? And for a kid that spends a ton of time at the library, I, I'm like, you know, this is a reader. This is somebody who's like plugged in. Like, this is part of that identity. And that's what service I think can often show is, is what your priorities are, what your interests are, uh, because that's, that's where you're choosing to spend your time. Right, right. And for a student who's t- trying to build a, a profile that really shows who they are, better to do service in an area, like you say, where you're expressing more about an interest than just, well, I'm going to do community service, so I'm going to go down to the soup kitchen and I'm going to stack boxes or I'm going to serve food. Again, those are not... Those are good things to do. It's not like they lack value. It's just... It's better, arguably, right? To follow up on interests. It has a lot to do with just the attitude going in, right? So is the attitude like, okay, there's a shift at the soup kitchen. It's three hours. So that's going to get me closer to the 30 hours that I need this year. Or is it, I'm really excited to go down there because I'm interested in um, houselessness within my community. I'm interested in helping get people resources. And I want to see how the food bank or the soup kitchen functions within my community. So I'm going to go check that out. Right. Um, and I think, you know, what's really cool about this, you can bring friends along, you can bring your family, make mom and dad come with you as a yes. student. But when you see the student is like motivating the project, there's something that's so much, so much more authentic to that. And, and that, of course, is a keyword that we bring up on almost every show. Right. Right. Being authentic. Mm-hmm. So let's reverse that or flip that. And what are some things that you think students might want to discount as, you know, less valuable community service type of work. Yeah, I, I think I think anytime you're really just focused on accumulating hours, right? So we want the hours to be a byproduct of a commitment of time. We don't want them to be the reason uh, right. for showing up and, and doing what it whatever it is that you're doing. And it's been very interesting, Beth, that you know, I think that a lot of the community service hours that we've seen high schools require students to have in order to graduate has sort of been a response to this idea that community service is important in the college process. Mm-hmm. So, but now everybody in that school is doing it, right? So, right. so now there's every single student that graduates from that high school has the same number minimum of community service hours. And so it's no longer a differentiator within that applicant pool. It's a really interesting solution that actually creates a different kind of problem for students. Right. 
Um, so I, I think going for hours is really the wrong approach. Thinking more about, about that underlying activity is important. Um, and I think that one of the ways that you can get into trouble if you're looking at hours is you're cobbling together lots of different experiences across many different organizations and, and opportunities. So it's like, I'll go to the soup kitchen, then I'll do some tutoring, then I'll work at the library, then I'll go plant some trees. And like I'm putting these hours together. But how you would represent that in an application or what the story is that's included there, I think is really difficult. Um, I think it's great to explore early on, but then you want to figure out, okay, what did I enjoy the most out of these four activities that I did? Which one do I want to continue to go back to right. as opposed to just grabbing piecemeal here and there and building those hours together? Right. And also I think um, one of the key things I'm hearing come from you a couple of times is just in your community, yeah. Um, which in my mind means you're staying closer to home. What are your thoughts on projects that take you out of your community, cost your parents money? And, you know, what do you think about those? <laughs> I, I mean, whenever I look at that, the, it's, there's an idea that's sort of like, there are people probably 20 minutes away from where you live that could mm-hmm. also use help. There are organizations within your community that, could, that could, you can lend your support to. And I think that a reason to go international or to to travel for some reason, um, it has to be there. You want to do it because there's an authentic reason for doing so, right? Like I have a friend who is super interested in setting up healthcare facilities and how how different or you know um, how different countries that are under resourced might set up hospitals. And so being international serves that interest because it's right. fulfilling that curiosity. But I think if you're just saying, well, if I go to another country, that's on its face going to be more impressive because look how much I'm committing to this right. effort. It's not really perceived in that way. And I think I think that there is there is something even that could potentially be problematic about showing up for two weeks to help do something and then leaving. Mm-hmm. Whereas this sustained commitment that you can give to a community that you live in for years can make much more of an impact um, long-term. Right. And I, and I agree with you on the whole, like, there are reasons that you might go abroad to do some community service. And I think you highlighted a couple, but um, I, I just... Yeah, you could do more good closer to home. And I also think that's something that feels a little questionable about paying a lot of money and going is it basically you're really doing nothing other than showing up and doing what they tell you to do. So it's a nice little way to give back that's all wrapped up in a bow. And here you go. Um, You're going to go on this trip. You're going to get your hours and you're going to do some good. It isn't that you're not doing good. It's that it requires very little of the student other than your parents typically opening up their their checkbook, which is a really antiquated way to think about it. But other than your parents shooting a Venmo somewhere, right, or giving their credit card. Um, and the other types of involvement speak more to that student engagement. Like you said, the student kind of being the ringleader, the student driving the process a little bit more. So, yeah. yeah. And, we, and we can imagine circumstances where a student – does some fundraising and is able to fund, uh, you know, a trip where they're going somewhere because they have that particular interest. But I think that there's, there's a lot of sort of antecedent research and understanding that comes from that. And I think that where students can get into trouble is, you know, they're coming up on a summer, they're trying to think about what it is that they want to do. And they say, well, maybe I'll go somewhere and do some community service. And for me, that's just, that's the wrong approach. Go 
down the street and do some community service if that's the thing that you are really excited about doing. There isn't any special benefit to going abroad to do this unless it fulfills that interest. Right, right, exactly. Um, what else? I, we've seen some things about, you know, some schools will give community service awards out. Sometimes I think those things will be based on you have a student who's really super active in community service, and sometimes it's around other things. I think there's a pre- presidential service award. When you saw that on an application, did that make you say, wow, that's impressive? Talk, talk to us a little about the awards piece of community service. Yeah, so so I think there are different kinds of awards, um, you know. And I'll, let's just let's just draw an analogy between an academic award and then the service award. So in your school, you can win the English Student of the Year award, which is a big deal, right? The department chooses the best student within all the English classes at your grade level. That's that's a big deal, and there are probably some subjective elements of that as well as well as objective measures. Then there's also the honor roll. So you, in order to hit the honor roll, you have to have above a certain GPA, right? Right. And so if you are on the honor roll and you tell me that as a college admission officer, but I have your grades in front of me, all that tells me is that the honor roll requires that you have at least these grades. Right. right. It's telling me more about your school system than it's telling me anything about you. And so the Presidential Service Award has these criteria that say if you hit a certain number of hours in a calendar year, you qualify for the bronze, silver, or, or gold award. Right. But your activities list already tells me what service you've done, and how many hours you've committed to those. So adding on top of that, that you've got the the gold award is in many ways redundant. Right. And so I I think students that are striving for this, um, you know, it could be nice to win that award to get some recognition. I think it's good to set goals, but I wouldn't let that hourly commitment take away from, again, that authentic interest that we're pointing to. We're not aiming for redundant measures of our success. We're, We're really looking for that authenticity. Right. And we're not. And I think what you and I talked about yesterday was it doesn't matter so much the number of hours. It's really more about the activity behind the hours. And I think that's key. Ian, thank you so much for joining today as a guest. Yeah, this is great. Let's uh, (laughs) let's do this more. I mean, well, we have to have other people on the show. right? We do. We do. Can't just be us. However, that said, next week you are back. You are hosting um, and you're going to be going over fall timeline for seniors from both an admissions and a college finance perspective. Um, and also talking about how to use if you have Naviance as part of your school offerings, how to make that an asset and use it as part of your college process. Cool. Um, I did mention earlier in the show, please don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts for us. The more we get, the easier it is for others to find us. We would, of course, love it if you give us a five-star review. If you think this is helpful, please give us the five stars. We would really appreciate it. Um, If you have questions, we do our listener Q&As pretty frequently. You can email us, uh, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. That's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. And don't forget, we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Have a good day. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.